Our Lord, our God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we gather this morning as your people, uh, that you will speak to us, trusting that you will speak into our lives that which we need to hear of you today. Please be with us. Please open our hearts and minds that we might hear what you have to say to us in your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest? So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. 
Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of God. Prepared to lead. Prepared to lead. That's what we're going to be talking about today. To start us off, I want you to imagine that there's a piece of junk in your backyard that you want to get rid of, but it's too big to fit in the bin. How do you get rid of it? Do you, A, find yourself a sledgehammer and smash it to bits? B, find yourself a screwdriver to dismantle it into parts? Do you, C, wait for a curbside collection to come along? Or D, do you keep it because it might come in handy sometime? What's your style? Are you a destructor, a dismantler, a digger, or a delayer? It can tell us something about our personalities, can't it? About how we respond to the obstacles that we face. Do you like to smash through? Do you like to analyse things, break them down into smaller bits? Are you a person who likes to find workaround solutions to problems? Or are you happy just to wait until the problem goes away? Well, different circumstances require different responses. The truth is we all have to deal with obstacles in life, don't we? It could be limitations in ourselves, opposition from an enemy, or the usual constraints of time and circumstance. But a good leader will find a way through the obstacles with God's help and with hard work. Nehemiah was such a leader. And today we're going to see how he overcame obstacles in his life by taking command and then rallying the people to the work of rebuilding the wall at Jerusalem. Because Nehemiah cared for God's people and he cared for God's glory. He really cared. He showed it in his prayers and in his life. And he was a man who was prepared to lead. So my question today is this, how do I overcome the obstacles in my life and what can Nehemiah teach me? I want to suggest there are three main points I'd like to share with you today from our passage, namely know your goal, know your ground and know your game plan. And there is also a fourth point that goes with these, it's know your God. Because if, after all, if you don't know your God, then you'll end up by these points alone, building on the sands of self-reliance, which is a fool's game. So we need to know that what we're doing is done in the knowledge of God. Nehemiah's greatest strength as a leader was his humble dependence on God. But we spoke about that last week as we saw Nehemiah's prayer and I won't be covering that again today in detail. So just to be clear, my premise is that what we need to overcome the obstacles in life as Christians is a knowledge of God and a prayerful practicality to respond to those problems. A a good and godly leader will find a way through the obstacles of life with God's help and with hard work. Well, as we saw last week, Nehemiah was a man who covered everything in prayer. We'll see that again today. It was in the kids' talk too, wasn't it? He was a man of prayer who trusted in God's faithfulness. So that's the first thing. You really must know your God. But then these three points follow on from that. 
Know your goal, know your ground, and know your game plan. Know your goal, know your ground, and know your game plan. So here's the story so far. When Nehemiah heard the sad news about the troubles in Jerusalem, it not only moved him to tears, it moved him to action. But first of all, he prayed. He prayed that God would grant him favour in the presence of the king. And now this is how God answered his prayer. My first point today is know your goal. It's very important to know your goal because sometimes you only get one shot at it. So what exactly are you aiming at? What are you hoping to achieve? And what will you need to get there? What exactly is your goal? Today, the king will ask Nehemiah three questions. Why so sad? What do you want? And how long will you be gone? These three questions. Why so sad? What do you want? And how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah has just one chance to explain it to the king, which he does because he knows his goal. When the opportunity comes, he's already thought about it. He knows what he needs to say. So now that big day has arrived, and let's see what happens in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. And he says, I had not been sad in his presence before. For the first time, Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, servant of the king, let his true feelings show. And whether this was on purpose or by accident, he was just reflecting on all the terrible things that he'd heard, I don't know. But what I do know is that the timing was perfect because this is the 20th anniversary of King Artaxerxes. It was a happy time in the king's life. You know, not many kings got to rule for 20 years in those days. It's very likely that Nehemiah caught the king on a good day. And remember, this was not an official meeting. Nehemiah was just a servant. I imagine the king perhaps reclining on his royal sofa. He's happy, he's comfortable, he's calm. The queen is here with him, he's enjoying the day. But Nehemiah is sad in his presence. Why? Because we know his heart is troubled by the sorry state of affairs that he's heard about of his people in Jerusalem. And so today, in the presence of the king, as he's bringing the cup, he shows his sadness like never before. And the king notices, and the king comments. And by God's grace, this amazing conversation now begins in verse 2. Nehemiah tells us, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. Well, you know, there are different interpretations to what's going on here, but it seems to me the king wants to help. It's not off with his head straight away. He asks Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? What's wrong, Hezekiah? What's wrong? This is the chance of a lifetime. It's certainly an answer to prayer. But it's still, as we saw again in the kids' talks, a scary thing to find yourself thrust into the spotlight, having to answer a question like this from the king of Persia. 
Nehemiah tells us, I was very much afraid. Literally, a terrible fear came upon me. A terrible fear came upon me. And with all the courage he can muster now, he speaks to the king in verse 3. May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I want you to notice here one thing Nehemiah doesn't mention is the name of the city. He does not mention Jerusalem by name. Instead, he refers only to the city where my fathers are buried. And we know it's Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention that to the king. And there's a good reason for this. Because, you see, 13 years earlier, an attempt had been made to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem under Ezra. And Artaxerxes, the same king, had issued a decree stopping the wall from being built on the grounds that Jerusalem was a rebellious city. So this is awkward. It's kind of like a policy in place for the walls of Jerusalem not to be rebuilt. And this is how it happened. As I said, in the days of Ezra, the enemies of God's people petitioned the king to stop the work of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And they laid charges against the Jews, and the king believed them, and they're probably not entirely without cause. Jerusalem had been a rebellious city, certainly from the perspective of uh, the Babylonians and, and also the Persians. So the king issued an edict which is recorded for us by Ezra in Ezra chapter 4. It was written to the commanders of the province, including the troublemakers who had issued the, the, the complaints uh, to Bishlam, Mithradath and Tabiel. And it says this. This is from Ezra chapter 4. And this is the king's words. Let the, let, the, sorry, the letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city, Jerusalem, this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Signed, the king. And that's why Nehemiah has to be careful. This problem won't be solved by a sledgehammer approach. It's going to require a delicate touch to persuade the king to reverse the policy that he himself had made that had previously stopped the wall from being built. So what's the best approach in a situation like this? Well, Nehemiah needs to find a point of common ground with the king. So in answering the king, he keeps it personal and avoids any direct mention of Jerusalem by name. Why should my face not be sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? By keeping it personal and not political, 
Nehemiah humanises the plight of his people. And we see that happening all the time in the world today, in the media, whenever something happens like a war, and we see it in the Middle East at the moment, it's the images, isn't it, of the suffering children. It's the images of the people hurting that goes out and everybody's heart goes, oh, that's bad, we need to stop this. And yet war sometimes is necessary. But here, Nehemiah works to humanise the problems that he has and his concern for his people. And it cuts through with the king. I mean, this man was a man of war, no doubt about it, and yet humanising the problem touches him. Nehemiah speaks in a manner that shows that part of what he wants to do is to respect the memory of his ancestors, The city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins. And at this the king is touched because this is something that he would also feel, especially as a king and as a son, he would want his memory to be revered in the days when he passes away and certainly he would want to revere the memory of his ancestors too. So now the king is really listening and in this moment of divine grace, I think it's a reminder of the importance of prayer by which the Holy Spirit can turn the heart of the king if it so pleases him. And that's certainly what is happening here. Nehemiah's prayers and those of his friends who prayed with him during those months in the lead-up to this conversation is being answered. And so this wonderful situation arises. It brings me to the king's second question in verse 4. The conversation continues. The king said to Nehemiah, what is it you want me to do for you? How can I help? How can I help? This is the critical moment, isn't it? To calm his nerves, Nehemiah does what many a Christian has done before. He shoots up an arrow prayer to God. Lord, give me the words to say. Give give, Give the king a heart to hear. Grant me your favour, because I need it now. So in verse 4, he says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. It's a bold request from the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah really asks for the impossible. But then that's the point, because nothing is impossible with God. The Holy Spirit has turned the king's heart, and he is willing to help. Nehemiah's goal is to comfort Jerusalem by rebuilding the wall. So when the king asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Nehemiah knows exactly what he needs to say. And this time he is bold. This time he is direct. He goes straight for it. Send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And Nehemiah knows what he needs because he knows his goal. Verse 7, then he asks for letters from the king to ensure safe conduct. He's thought about this. And in verse 8, letters to Asaph, allowing him to take wood from the king's forest for beams, for rebuilding the gates and the buildings and so on. But Nehemiah has to be careful not to lose the king's trust. His loyalty must never be put in doubt or everything will be lost. So the king's third question is just as important as the first two. 
How long will your journey take, Nehemiah? And when will you come back? Are you going and not returning? No, you are still my servant. When are you coming back? The king wants to know when Nehemiah will return. So in verse 6, Nehemiah tells us that he set an appropriate time. The king is willing to send him. Nehemiah responds. He tells him how long he's going to need. He's thought this through. He's got answers for the questions that the king asks. And in this whole interaction, it strikes me how helpful the king has been. His favour toward Nehemiah is genuine, or he would never grant him such liberties. In any position of leadership, such as Nehemiah now has, is now being given, good communication is an essential thing. You have to be clear and to the point, just as Nehemiah is. You have to know what to ask for and know how to explain it. Good communication is essential, otherwise trust will be eroded and then the opportunity to achieve your goals will be lost. I'm sure the same thing applies in your workplace today. Many of you are in positions of considerable responsibility, just like Nehemiah was, kind of in middle management. Still got somebody perhaps over you, but people under you who will help you achieve your goals. And you will face the same kind of challenge that Nehemiah faced in trying to honour God in a secular workplace. It's not easy, but that's what you are being called to do. It's part of the application of our passage today. So what do you do as a Christian in a secular workplace? How do you deal with a non-Christian boss? Well, what you don't do is compromise on your faith. Don't lie or cheat. Don't do anything to compromise your integrity. Pray often, as Nehemiah did. And always be prepared to give an answer to the questions your boss may ask you at any time. Be accountable. Work hard and work as unto the Lord. Consider Christ as the one for whom you are doing this work. A good boss is happy to have creative workers, but they don't like to be surprised by the unexpected. If you want to be appreciated as a loyal worker, whether at church or at work or in any organisation, then seek to do everything to the glory of God and in a way that demonstrates your integrity as a person. Nehemiah's first priority was clearly to honour God And so should ours be. Find the points of common ground wherever you can with your non-Christian colleagues, but know that there will be times when your priorities as a Christian, your values as a Christian, will be at odds. There'll be clashes from time to time. And at such times, you need to know your goal and stick to it. Be loyal, be diligent, and your boss will or should trust you to do your job just as the king trusted Nehemiah to do his. And when all is said and done, remember to be thankful to God for those times when God does turn the heart of your boss in the way that is right. As we read in verse 8, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah is thankful for all that God has done through this man, through this king, And now, with the king's commission and 
given an armed escort to back him up, Nehemiah makes the journey to Jerusalem. And straight away, as soon as he gets there, you notice there are some people who are not happy about this. Not happy, Jan. Not happy. Today, we may call these people the swamp. These are the bureaucrats, the sycophants, the corrupt officials who've enriched themselves at the expense of God's people. Verse 10. When Sanballat, Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. It's sad, but such is the way of the world. Trouble lies ahead. Of that you can be sure. That's true then, it's true today. When that clash happens, things heat up. Now I want to move on to my second point today. Know your ground. Know your ground. A good leader must first take account of the challenges that lie ahead. And that's what Nehemiah does now in verses 11 to 16. He takes a survey of the wall to assess the damage, to estimate the scale of the work that will be needed to repair it. He goes out in order to survey the situation that he might know the ground. But first, notice he takes a break. And there's wisdom in this, isn't there? As soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he takes three days to rest. And knowing when to rest is a very important thing. It's quite an arduous journey. Uh, The journey from where he would have been in Susa, in Iran, all the way around the Fertile Crescent, down uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles, uh, down to where Jerusalem is. And when he arrives, the first thing he does is to rest. And you know how it is, right? The tireder you are, the harder it is to work well. We don't function when we're exhausted, stressed, worn out, tired. As human beings, we phase out, we lose our concentration, we lose our perspective, we get anxious because we're tired. And then we make silly mistakes and poor judgments. And Nehemiah can't afford to do that. He needs to be fresh. He needs to be rested. So before anything else, he takes a break. Only then does he begin this secret reconnaissance mission that starts in verse 12. This is one of the best-known incidents, actually, in the whole book of Nehemiah, this moonlight journey that takes him around the walls of the city. And so we read in verse 12, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. It's a secret reconnaissance mission. And there are times in any great enterprise when secrecy is of the utmost importance because, as they say, loose lips sink ships. They used to say that in the wars. You say too many things and the ship can be sunk. Loose lips sink ships. And the last thing Nehemiah needs now is for his plans for Jerusalem to leak out before he's ready. If that were to happen, his enemies could easily sabotage the whole venture before it even gets started. Actually, Nehemiah's strategy is something that they also teach in military school. It's called boundary riding. It's how you get to know your ground. I've got a map for you of Jerusalem there with the actual areas that Nehemiah surveyed. It's actually not that large. 
It's kind of their smaller internal walls of the city. It was just the right size for the small population of Jews to complete successfully. And that's another mark of a good leader. A good leader knows how to plan for success while keeping it within the the limits of his team. General Robert E. Lee was one of America's greatest leaders. You might have heard of his name. He was one of the generals who served on the side of the Confederate Army, that's the South, during the American Civil War of the 1860s. Not because he defended slavery, he didn't. He owned slaves, but he was of the view that slavery should be brought to an end. He ended the war not because of slavery, but because those people, as he called the politicians of his day, those people had acted in bad faith towards the citizens of his home state of North Virginia. So he felt it was his duty to heed the call. Circumstances led to him fighting for the South, even though he'd been trained uh, and was one of the best-known generals that America had. General Lee was also a Christian man whose character shaped his conduct. In fact, he was so highly regarded that he and his men were given full military honours by the Union troops who stood at attention as General Lee rode by to sign the peace documents. He was respected by all. How far America has fallen today that they can no longer honour such a man who worked as hard for peace as he had once worked for war. He was a truly great American and a Christian. But during the Black Lives Matter protests, they took down his statue and cut it up into pieces so it can't be put back in order to erase the memory of one of the world's greatest generals. But the reason I mention Robert E. Lee this morning is because he was a boundary rider who copied Nehemiah's example. This passage influenced how he did his work as a general. He often went out by night, by himself, on his horse, to ride the boundary, to assess the task at hand, to work out where the battle should be fought the following day. He put his own life at risk many, many times to survey where the enemy camp was, what their numbers were, what the lay of the land was, and to formulate a plan that could work to his best advantage. He was a boundary rider as a general, and many of his greatest victories were won during the boundary riding hours that kept him one step ahead of the enemy. Know your ground, he would tell his men. Do your own reconnaissance. Take things as you find them, make the best of what you have and turn them to your advantage. Well, that's good advice, isn't it? Prayerful practicality. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. It's the lesson that General Lee learnt. Verse 13. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered 
through the valley gate. Do you see what he's done? It's brilliant, isn't it? He'd never been to Jerusalem. He needed to go and see for himself the circumstances that he faced in order to prepare for the battle ahead. Nehemiah surveyed the ground before his enemies even knew what he was doing. He knew that he would have a fight on his hands as soon as the building work began. He knew that he would face opposition and he knew that his troops were ill-prepared. So to make sure that he had the best opportunity to turn things to the advantage of God's people, he made sure that he knew his ground first by doing that boundary riding. And again, verse 16, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. This clever approach gave Nehemiah the advantage. It allowed him to formulate a game plan that is the actual approach needed to achieve his goal. Only then did he go out and rally the troops. And that brings me to my third and final point for today. Know your game plan. Know your goal. Know your ground. Know your game plan. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. That's a happy line, isn't it? So they began this good work. Nehemiah inspired the people with an exciting vision of the future. He made it sound possible. As a leader, he gave them something to aim for, something big. And because he had the game plan, he could give them the confidence in his leadership. He rallied the troops. He laid down the challenge and he invited the people to join in this good work that the Lord had given him to do. You can do this. You can be part of that work which God has given us to rebuild the wall. With God's help, you know you can do it. All we need to do is to organize ourselves. Let us have each family work on a part of the wall that is nearest to their own home. That basically is how Nehemiah sets it out. You can see that in in chapter 3. The people arrange themselves around the wall with mostly each family working in front of a section that's outside their home. That was Nehemiah's game plan, and he put it into effect very successfully. And so the work began. But so did the opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Ooh, Uh, the charge of treason. That's a dangerous one, isn't it? Are you rebelling against the king? This is the kind of threat that can put a stop to the work before it begins. So this time, Nehemiah does take the sledgehammer approach. Different circumstance, different response. 
Nehemiah is convinced that God wants this work of rebuilding to go ahead and he courageously takes these enemies of the people head on. In verse 20, Nehemiah stands firm. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is exactly what the people needed to hear at this moment. But in speaking like this, you know that Nehemiah has made himself some powerful enemies. I'll have more to say about that next week. For now, I just want to make the point that leaders need to lead. Leaders need to lead. It was a lesson I was most mortified to learn about three years into ministry. I went to a leadership conference and the man said, leaders lead to lead. I thought, oh no. That probably means me. I'm not a leader. I don't want to lead. It's the last thing that I want to do. But it's true. You know, leaders need to lead, need to put themselves right in the heat of the battle. You don't lead from the back. Lead from the front. Sometimes the only way to overcome an obstacle is to face it down. To say no, no more. And then to press on regardless, trusting that God will provide the strength in the hour of need. Leaders lead. So in conclusion, there is much that we can learn from Nehemiah today about how to overcome obstacles in life. Because there's always work to be done, always work for God's kingdom in the world today. And we need to be up and doing that work, the work that Christ, our King, has given us to do. It's called the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Making disciples. Rebuilding the wall. Strengthening the people. And we can do this. But I say to you, we need leaders. We need prayer warriors. We need people who are willing to be trained, people who are willing to serve, people who are willing to put their hearts and souls into the work of the gospel in this place. We need to do rebuilding work as a congregation. And we can do this. But are you willing to be a part of that work? I've been thinking what we need to do is organise some training. And I have someone in mind. But when it's organised, will you come along? Will you come to the training? To be refreshed in what it means to share the gospel Is this a work that you want to be a part of to the glory of God in Burwood? Honestly, I'm not a natural leader. I'm no Nehemiah. But it's amazing what God will do with our lives when we're simply willing to trust him. So what have we learned today? First things first, know your God. Everything that I've said today must be understood in the context of knowing your God. Are you near the Lord? Are you close to him? Are you in his word? Are you drawing into the Lord in prayer? Do you know your God? That's the first thing. And then I suggest that in the Christian context, leaders lead by prayer and personal integrity They lead by boundary riding and working out what needs to be done, getting ahead of the enemy, one step ahead. That's a great reminder. 
Also by setting achievable goals that can be set before people to say, oh, I can actually be part of this. I can see where I can help, where I can fit in. And then courage and commitment, knowing how to respond in different ways to different obstacles, using the full toolkit. Sometimes you need the sledgehammer. Bang! Sometimes you need the screwdriver. Dismantle things little by little. Sometimes you just need the curbside collection. Sometimes it's best to wait until the times change. But whatever we do, we need to do our duty under Christ. That's the calling. So in conclusion, a good and godly leader will find a way through the obstacles of life with God's help and with hard work. As a church, we need to recover more of that fighting spirit that Nehemiah displays. We need to see every soul of every human being as precious in the sight of God, created for eternity. And the world may look at us, and the world may scorn and laugh, and may think that whatever we do as Christians is a waste of time. But we know that all things are possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord, And so we press on until the work is done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of your word today. Thank you for the example that Nehemiah sets as a servant of of the king, truly a servant of the king of kings. We thank you for his ability to discern the way forward, for his courage, his commitment ultimately to Christ. Therefore, for the example that he sets us, that we might be overcomers in your world today of all the opposition and obstacles that we may face. Lord, renew our love for you in these times. and Renew our love for those who are perishing, those who are lost and lonely and hurting, that we might bring to those around us in our community today the message of hope that you have brought to us that in Christ there is comfort and eternal life. So, Lord, lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.